Alright all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 152 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the You've Got Mail episode of the SLS Cast, because it turns out that Tom Hanks' character of Joe in the movie You've Got Mail has an AOL handle of NY152. And with that little bit of... Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, movie trivia knowledge. I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from the lovely land of California would be our resident Sony employee. Possibly blind Tim. Yes, good old (laughs) retinal tear Tim. (laughs) We need need a name with like an R. Oh my God, that that would be... Both Retinal the Rip worst Richard. and the greatest yeah. nickname, Retinal Tear Tim. <laughs> was that a re- was that a rectal tear Tim? No, a retina tear Tim. Well, maybe rectal tear would be <laughs> would be Preferably, the worst of yeah. the two two choices. Yeah, of, I mean, you know, thing. just you know, blind in one eye or death by sepsis, whatever, right? You know, who cares? One, one or the other. It's very minor, really. <laughs> Yes, well, I am Tim, 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 Tim. How was your Halloween, Matt? Did uh, did everything work out well with the kiddos? Did they get a lot of candy? They did. Uh, they definitely got their cauldron. Uh, their cauldrons overfloweth with candy. Did they walk around with, like, a legitimate cast iron cauldron? It wasn't cast iron, uh, but it was a pretty sturdy plastic cauldron, as it were. So I, I must ask, like, because uh, every year I notice that there is a new candy out that everybody happens to buy, and therefore, whenever you go trick or treating, or a kid goes trick or treating, or whatever, or the parents of the kids they bring some of that candy to work the next day or that next work day uh, for mm-hmm. all the coworkers to enjoy, and mm-hmm. I notice that. There was a a brand new candy that I haven't noticed, and not necessarily that it's a brand new candy. I mean, it's a Butterfinger, but it's something like a Butterfinger cup, kind of like a Reese's cup, but it's Mm -hmm. Butterfinger. Have you noticed any new candy trends that happened this year? Uh, I really don't monitor the candy. Um, Jen is much more of the candy tax queen. And so she makes sure that the kids divvy up their candy and um, for usually for a few weeks anyway, after Halloween, all their candy has been sorted out. So she, you know, so they can at least see how much chocolate they got versus how many candy things that they got versus how many, you know, lollipop things that whatever. And then she can start, you know, like throwing one or two candies into their lunches every day using them for treats but generally after about two weeks sometimes three weeks it then all just ends up in a huge bucket in a bag or whatever and jen has sorted it into like chocolate candies and whatever lollipop candies or whatnot and then it just kind of becomes a free-for-all and then after about another two months the rest of it just ends up in the trash so do you guys check for drugs 
make sure there is no ecstasy tabs glued to a Tootsie Roll? No, we don't really bother with that. Jen just generally puts the drugs already onto the thing, onto the candy, so that they'll go to bed later. <laughs> no, it's really funny. It's it's kind of sad that they that that's just this myth and stereotype. There there's like been virtually no reported cases ever of someone like poisoning candy or something. Oh, like but there urban. was this year in Sacramento, California. I don't Ooh, have the article in front of me. Finally did it, huh? Somebody finally did it, and it, it's funny. And <laughs> it was this eleven-year-old girl, really smart eleven-year-old girl. I'm going off of memory, off of something I read this morning. Apparently. She made a conscious decision to unwrap and possibly eat a Tootsie Roll. I didn't realize kids still like Tootsie Rolls, or a human in that matter. And, well, as she was unwrapping the Tootsie Roll, there she noticed two ecstasy tablets firmly planted on the Tootsie Roll. So it wasn't like the, the, the ecstasy tablets were within the Tootsie Roll, they were just kind of on top of it. She posted a picture, or the the magazine, the newspaper article or whatever, posted a picture of the Tootsie Roll with the ecstasy tablets. And it the, the child poisoner was not really trying all that hard. I mean, kids these days yeah. are awfully smart. I would be willing to bet dollars to donuts that she is related to someone who was trying to hide it or she found it and decided to make uh, something of it, or she got caught with it because she had it and was going to do it. And then, oh, look, Mom, I wasn't going to take ecstasy. Look, this was just in my Halloween candy. Um, <laughs> or there is someone in Sacramento going, God damn it, where's my ecstasy-coated <laughs> fucking Tootsie Rolls? What the shit? Where are they? I can't find them anywhere. Well, Johnny, I I thought that was for the trick or treaters. <laughs> no, Mom, God, that was it's for like the rave later. Have you ever seen those uh, five second films? Uh, I I I mean, are there particular no, it's, ones it's, that it's I like should an have actual, seen? Yeah, I mean, it is an actual thing. It's, it's a YouTube channel and the whole nine yards. Like there's, like there's a, a Vine. No, no, no. These are these are just like short films. Like they, like, I want to say they predated vines, and they still made them. But it just reminds me of one of the five second films that's out there. It was like it's called the Roommate Switch or something. And you see a bank robber who's like, I'm, you know, I'm gonna fucking kill y'all. I'm gonna and then pulls the trigger of this gun and just out pops the little bang flag. And then he's like, What the fuck? And then it goes over to his roommate who's a clown, <laughs> and there's just dead bodies everywhere. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's good stuff. Uh, the story of my life. Well, good. I mean, it sounds like you had a fun Halloween. Yeah, we did the thing with the kids. I, I did not get to do my second uh, Halloween party, so I was kind of bummed out because the second Halloween party that we were going to try and do on Halloween proper uh, was with a buddy of mine that I actually have not seen in man getting on to two years now so i was actually really hoping we would get to go to this halloween party just so i could see my buddy but uh we went out on friday evening and were and definitely had many a drink and i did the uh saint arnold pumpkinator drank the drank that and then of course my standard grolsch that i enjoy drinking along and and brought more converts into the coney island hard root beer fold 
We want to get these fuckers off. Going to get all these fuckers off the not your father's root beer. If it's the last thing I do. I think calling a you beer would. Coney Island, that, that should be reserved for a hot dog flavored beer. Mm, no, thanks. Like, if you had a choice to sample a wiener-flavored beer, would you not sample it? No. What if there was a wiener That's right up there with, if your Uncle Jack was stuck on a horse, would you help your Uncle Jack off? I mean, you know. You're disgusting. (laughs) There you go. You're (laughs) disgusting. We don't do hot dog-flavored beer. Well, my Halloween was cool. I saw Danny Elfman. He, uh, I went to a live performance of A Nightmare Before Christmas at the Hollywood Bowl. Mm-hmm. It wasn't really a, a live performance, as in it was a full orchestra, the L.A. Orchestra or whatever they're called, performing the music as the movie is playing. And Danny Elfman came out and sung. Uh, Catherine O'Hara came out uh, and sung her the, the song that she sings because she plays shit. What's the... What's the 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 lady the lady you know Jack's main squeeze yes, love interest yeah from from the audience Chelsea Sally Sally thank you we have paper thin <laughs> walls out here in <laughs> the guy who played Mister Oogie the save, Boogie Chelsea and <laughs> the guy who played Oogie Boogie was there and there were also a couple surprises because uh, they had. A lot of people that provided a lot of the additional voices uh, performing, uh, at, you know, performing those additional voices like the witches and the just all the different characters. And well, it turns out that the original shock block and barrel, whatever their names were, the three little kids that they were performed. The people that performed the, the, those voices were Catherine O'Hara, Danny Elfman and Paul Rubens. Well, at the very end. Danny Elfman brought out Catherine O'Hara and Paul Rubens, and the three of them performed an extended version of that song that the three of them sing, singing about Oogie Boogie and all that stuff and catching Santa Claus. And then at the very end, to cap off the night, Danny Elfman performed one of his Oingo Boingo hits. Uh, I think it's called Dead Man's Dance or Dead Man's Party, which was pretty awesome. And he performed with the full orchestra and... All that jazz. It was a really cool night actually being able to see Danny Elfman performing as Jack Skellington in front of a live audience while watching the movie while all this was going on. So it was really cool. I think this Halloween took the cake in my book. We had a lot of fun. And I'm glad that apparently the devil did not um, do his repeat of urine soaked bottles being thrown at your head no 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 it, chelsea got a voodoo curse cast on her uh when we were we had we were walked back home and walking back home if you have to walk through hollywood especially the hollywood and vine area that intersection you have to deal with some wackos you have the scientologists and the the the, the hardcore christians i guess that are there just trying to exercise the demons out of everybody trying to have a good time once you make it past that portion of town, it, it's like you accomplished something. So we accomplished something that night, except some voodoo curse that was cast upon my significant other. All right, well, then let us move into some mail. We have a little bit of mail that we need to do because, um, well, I'll get to it here in a minute, but the mail! We went to the mailbox, which is, of course, the show at slscast.com. 
And we have two little ditties from Miss Diana. Uh, she sent us something on uh, the 30th, actually, because she was she had apparently listened to the Halloween show. And she says, Hey, you scary dudes. I must commend you two for making my heart stop and jump into my throat. I was pulling out of a busy gas station while listening to the beginning of the SLS cast on Friday, Devil Day before Halloween, when I thought I'd crashed into another car. In fact, it was the scary sound effects you employed to coincide with horror of backing out of a gas station that made me jump. I figure the horror aficionados that you are would appreciate it. Also, the devil voice is very sexy. Happy Halloween, Diana Weeks. So, thank you very much, Ms. Diana. We Whoa! That. <laughs> yeah. D and, don't uh, don't forget the devil came out of one of our asses. <laughs> the devil, devil, the devil lives in everybody's anus. That's that's the rule. So, so, Diana, next time you're inspecting that area, you might just see Matt's face. That's right. Popping because, out. and it actually that does remind me because. I can't believe I, well, I can believe it because we were only talking about Halloween. I, uh, earlier this evening, as everyone knows, we record on Mondays, and this is no exception. It's the 2nd of November for us as we record. But another show that I've been listening to lately called Mare vs. the Noob is also records on Monday night. So I did double duty tonight. I was actually a guest on their show and recorded on the show. And so we actually were discussing the devil voice, and you'll get to hear... Uh, you get to hear a whole bunch of discussion on all sorts of weird shit, but the devil comes up again, and, and that reminded me of that. And this also reminds me of I gave you credit for picking the the vast majority of the movies that we watched, Tim, when we were talking about you know movie discussions and whatever. Because I said generally, out of a hundred movies, I might pick like you know five or six. But this year, I actually outdid myself since I picked the Nightmare on Elm Street series to cover. So I got like... Nine, That's like, like 50 right there. Or at yeah. least it felt like 50 movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was like. Yeah, so now I've got like... That, that's like... 10 movies right there, yeah. Um, at any rate, though, so we have another one that came in from Diana again, so thank you, uh, on Sunday. And this is regarding Carnival of Souls. And she says, Happy All Souls Day. I want to thank Tim for recommending Carnival of Souls as a Halloween watch. It was the perfect amount of creepy, weird, and corny. Just long enough to add about an hour and a half to fill the time between my dinner and movie with my sister, who had her first empty nest Halloween with both her teenagers at sleepover parties and the start of the awesome Midnight Movie Nights podcast. It filled in my Halloween perfectly. To your listeners, please try some of the obscure movies these guys recommend. They have really good taste and an exquisite sense of what's worth watching. Till next time, kudos, Diana. So... I thought you would appreciate that, Tim. Good call on the Carnival of Souls. Yeah, no, thank you, Diane. It was really sweet of you. We appreciate it. So you two, again, can send us email to the show at slscast.com. And just for fun, uh, since we normally read Twitter followers out of this thing, too, you can also uh, hit us up on Twitter at the SLScast. All right, so I do not have any real news, okay, because... I have some news of the weird that is so what the fuck awesome, but it's long. It is so it is a narrative tale told in 140 characters or less. Yes, it's a Twitter tale <laughs> coming to us from Isaiah King. All right, now 
I have never heard of this girl before I stumbled across this, thanks to Reddit. Um, but she is at underscore Zola. Uh, I'm sorry, Zolar Moon. All right. Under, at underscore Z-O-L-A-R-M-O-O-N. At underscore Zolar Moon. Now, I would never, under normal circumstances, follow someone like this. But I had to find this girl and follow her after this. <laughs> Here we go. Are you ready for this, dude? This is insane. Are you ready? <sighs> I I am ready. <laughs> All right, I'm going to try and get through this with a straight face. This is going to be hard. So Tim's going to have real news for us after this. But All right, here we go. Y'all want to hear a story about why me and this bitch here fell out? It's kind of long, but full of suspense. And she's got this you know, these pictures of her and some other girl up on Twitter. And here we go. Okay, listen up. This story long. I am going to be reading these as they're written. So not there, there won't be any making fun of this kind of stuff. It's just this is what it's written. Okay, listen up. This story long. So I met this white bitch at Hooters. I was her waitress. She came in with this old ass, big ass black dude. So you know, as a Hooters girl, we have to talk to our customers. So I sit with them and we get to talking and she tells me she dances. So I'm like, oh yes, bitch, me too. Then she tells me this hulking black man is her sugar daddy. And I'm like, oh yes, bitch, my sugar daddy at home. I feel it. I feel it. So we vibing over our hoism or whatever and we exchange numbers and we like next time you dance hit me up i'ma come dance with you and they leave so the next day i get a text like bitch let's go to florida and i'm like huh she's like i'm gonna dance in florida let's go now i'm skeptical like damn bitch we just met and we already taken hoe trips together but i had went to florida two months prior and made 15k so low key, I was down. So I was like, okay, I'll go. Who's all going? And when we leaving? All this bitch says is be ready by eight. So I call her like, bitch, I said, who's all going? And she says, my boyfriend and our roommate and my roommate has a place in Tampa. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. I'll be ready. So I pack my baddest stripper wear and I'm ready. Now my nigga did not want me to go. He was so hurt. So I had to fuck him calm and then I left. Now when I got in the car, it was a white boy, her BF, and this hulking black guy, not the same one. So I texted her on the slick while in the back seat like, another sugar daddy? You got a tight bitch? And the black dude had her damn phone. So he starts laughing and he goes, I'm using her GPS. No, I'm not a sugar daddy. I've known her and her dude for eight years. We all live together. So Jessica, the white bitch, pulls me to the side and is like, we gonna be at the club all night. This room for Jarrett, not us. Don't even trip. So I was like, yeah, bitch, okay. But trust, I am not laying my head here. So we leave our shit at the motel with Jarrett and head to the club. So we working. It was kind of slow. It was early Friday night. The club had hella rules, which I'm not used to. I'm a full nude type of bitch. But this club required pasties and boy shorts and all this other shit, whatever. So after making about $800, I was ready to go. She was talking to some dude, trying to talk him out of his wallet, and they exchanged numbers. So I was like, call your man. I'm ready. She calls the black dude. I'm like, um, that's not your man, but okay. So I pull her to the side before he pulled up like, what's up with your roommate? 
And she was like, we're really close. Before I met Jared, I was with him. He was taking care of me. I was like, oh, well, I don't need that. Taking care of me in stripper language means that was her pimp. So I was like, does Jared know? And she goes, of course not. Strike one. So then she goes, I didn't make anything tonight. What you make? Because he's going to ask. I said, um, that's not y'all's business, Jess. Chill. <laughs> so he pulls up. And as soon as we get in, he goes, what y'all make? We said at the same time, nothing. So he goes, damn, my girl said she had a bad night, too. We finna go pick her up his fiance who lives down here. We pick her up and he goes, nobody made shit. Y'all want a trap? Trap in stripper lingo means trick. So Jessica goes, hell yeah, you got some clients. I'm in the back on mute. He was like, you can get some. So Jess is like, yeah, I need to trap. But Jared is at the room and he goes, I wasn't putting y'all in that shit hole. That was for him, not y'all. I'm still quiet. We pull up to a nice-ass hotel on the other side of town, and he goes, I'll get the clients together and text y'all off this. He handed her a trap phone, so I am mind-blown at this point. So then we get to the room, nice as fuck. Just me and Jess and I start going off. Bitch, you got me fucked up. I'm not about to play with you, ho. I'm going home. So she starts crying, and she's like, I don't want to take this trip alone. Please don't leave me. I would be so scared alone. She's fucking sobbing. I'm like, OMG. Really? Now I'm feeling bad for the hoe. She goes, you can just check the guys in. He's not going to force you to trap. I said, oh, bitch, I know he not. I kill his dead. <laughs> I kill dead. I kill dead ass kill y'all verbatim so she cleans herself up and there's a knock at the door i opened the door and some fat white man goes i'm here for the white girl so i check his pockets take his wallet and let him in they start fucking right on the bed next to me it was a fucking mess a mess so when they finished he gave her 100 dollars. i said jess you selling puss for 100 dollars? pussy is worth thousands you tripping she goes i don't make the prices the prices are already discussed before they come in so i was like bitch no if you're gonna do this do it right so i took some pics of her and put them up on back page along with the trap phone number with a minimum of five dollars the phone starts blowing up i was like see bitch i got you <laughs> boys coming up right now giving five hundred dollars for 15 minutes he comes i check him they get in he leaves we doing this all night she fucked about 20 dudes and her sorry ass pimp only sent three of them so around 6 a.m Jared calls. She answers on speaker and he is going off. Where the fuck are you and Zola? The club been closed. She goes, we went to another club. It was slow. So I'm Googling 24-hour clubs. Florida has a few. Trying to help her lie and he is not having it. He's livid. He goes, if you went home with a dude, you're dead. So he asked to speak to me. I was like, uh, man, I'm going to end up killing these crazy white people tonight. So he starts cussing me out where are y'all i know she's lying don't be a hoe like her zola i said i promise you i'm not he hangs up on me and that was it we didn't hear from him for the rest of the night we fall asleep a few hours later the black dude i still don't know his name comes up he's like 
how much you make last night? Jess goes, 5500 I was like, what the fuck? Why is she telling the truth? I pimped her, not him. So he goes, what the fuck? How? That's good, but I only sent you three clients. She goes, Zola made me a back page. I was like, whoa, whoa, wow, 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 wow. Here we go. So he goes, you can do my job better than me. I said, I was just helping her out. I really don't care. Your clients were cheap. He started laughing. He goes, give me the money. She gave him all of it. And he goes, thanks, Zola. You a real one. And throws $500 at me. I put that shit right in my bra. True fuck. And Jess goes, what about me? He said, you owe me rent, Jess. You haven't paid in months. I was like, damn. So we leave and head to Jarrett and the Raggedy Motel because our shit was there. And as we pull up, Jarrett chilling outside smoking weed with some dude. Pay attention here. We get out and walk up to them and Jarrett goes, here they go. The pimp goes, here go who? Who does this? Jarrett starts laughing and was like, he was asking me who I was here with. And I said, my girl and her friends, that's all. Chill out. The guy Jarrett was talking to laughs and goes, I'll catch you later, man. Nice meeting you. And leaves. He was a black guy with dreads. A Florida N-word. So we all get up to the room and the pimp is going off on Jarrett. You don't know them. Blah, blah, blah. I don't believe you told them there's two bitches in here. And Jarrett goes, he asked why I was out here mad last night. All I said was my girl went to work with her friend and I ain't want her to. Now the pimp is screaming. So that guy knows it's money up here now? Hell no. We got to go now. Me and Jess are like, what? So we pack our shit and head out. We went to a nicer hotel about 20 minutes away. So the pimp was like, Zola, keep an eye on Jared. I was like, oh shit. He then promoted me to look out and shit. So he leaves to go back to his fiance at home and Jared and Jess start arguing. He was like, I know you was trapping Jess. I saw the back page ad ho. And he shows her a screenshot. I was like, oh shit, here we go. So he starts crying like a bitch. I was like, wow. He's like, I thought you were done with this. I didn't come to Florida for this. You messy. Then he turns to me and goes, this what you came here for, Zola? I said, hell nah. Jared, she low-key set me up. I'm not fucking with y'all after this. He goes, wow, you even set up your friend. You such a hoe. So they arguing for hours. I leave and go down to the pool. I mean, I am in Florida. So my man calls me. I lied and said everything was okay. I didn't want him worrying. I had a nice dinner and then the pimp calls the trap phone. I answer and he's like, since you a madam and shit, do that shit again tonight. But set up out calls only because this hotel too nice to trap out of. I was like, cool, I got you, especially for another $500. So I go up to the room and told Jess to get ready. Jarrett goes, what the fuck again, bitch? No. I said, Jarrett, calm down please. This white guy starts punching himself like crazy people do, dog. I was like, oh, hell no. He goes, if you do this again, Jess, I will kill myself. I love you too much. I was like, this boy lost lost in the sauce and his bitch lost in the game. So I said, Jared, sit the fuck down. Just come on so I can take some pics. It's already 10 o'clock. Y'all playing. So I make her fresh and we come out the bathroom I did her hair and makeup and shit. And Jared goes, everybody knows you a hoe now. Fuck you. I want to go home. I said, huh? 
He throws his phone at her, and it's her Facebook. A status of both ads. Her mom is on there going off in the comments. Jessica starts bawling. Oh my god, my mom had my daughter this week. How could you? She on the floor literally breaking down. I was like, shit. So Jessica calls the pimp and tells, Jarrett, just put everything on Facebook. My whole family sees. The pimp goes, I told Zoe to watch him. Literally five minutes later, it's the pimp banging at our door. He comes in with his fiance this time and snatches Jared up by the neck. He wasted no time. He goes, I really should kill your ass. Jared is dangling off the ground crying, please don't, please. Low key, I'm crying. The fiance pulls out a handgun, y'all. She goes, you want to, bae, or what? Fuck him. He did our girl so wrong. I was like, oh my fucking God. So now Jess steps in and she's like, please don't, just beat his ass, Z. I was like, oh, his name's Z? Okay, got it. So he puts him down. Z goes, nah, I am going to kill his manhood, though. And he sits on the bed next to his fiance. He goes, sit in front of me, Jarrett. He does, still crying. He goes, delete the post and give me your phone. He did. Then he goes, come here, Jess. I was so lost. His fiance unbuckled his pants and just gets on her knees and starts sucking his dick in front of Jarrett and I. I was like, yo. He then gets up and starts fucking Jess from the back. Jarrett just sitting there. I'm standing with my mouth through the floor. The fiance right next to him with a gun in her lap. I was like, damn. So then he gets up and says, go clean up, Jess. You gotta work. He looks at Jarrett and says, any questions? Jared says, I want to go home. I laughed out loud. I couldn't help it. And Z goes, nah, I'm going to spend the night with my girl. So you going to take Jess to her out calls. I was like, damn, that's fucked up, bro. He goes, Zola got the clients and addresses so y'all can take her. And him and his fiance leave. The room is silent for the next 30 minutes swear the first client calls and he says he's ready so Jarrett takes us z left a handgun but told me not to tell them he slid it to me on the slick he texted the trap phone like i'm trusting you with my bitch zola if anything goes left use it i was like what i can't so anyway Jarrett took us to about four clients and then the phone was slow me and Jarrett were in the car together while she was working so we started having deep convo he really wasn't a bad dude but he was bipolar very bipolar so i understood his outburst a little more so we head back to the hotel and i fidget this one last call late as fuck and the client says i got five thousand but i want two bitches i said oh sorry we only have one the client goes well i got two thousand for one but it's four dudes and we only do in calls I was like, wow, what? So I text Z and told him. He was like, hell yeah, tell him to come on. So I set it up. The last minute, the client goes, actually, out call is fine and gives me an address. So we get in the car and head to the address. It just goes, it's four of them. Can you just wait in the hall, please? I was like, bitch, like, come on. So we head up to the room number they gave us and Jess knocks. A dude goes, who is it? And she says, in call. The door flings open fast as fuck and two big black dudes snatch Jess. Bitch, I ran so goddamn fast. I didn't even see straight. I was out.
fuck that. I run and the car is gone. I'm screaming, Jared, Jared, this fool gone. So I call him still running and he like, y'all done? I said, bitch, Z told you to never leave us. Where are you? He's like, I'm at the gas station. I was thirsty. I thought she was going to be a minute. I'm still running, laughing my fat ass off. Don't know where I'm going. I'm like, they snatched her, dude. Come get me. I'm calling the police. He pulls up a minute later and is like, don't call the police. Call Z. I was like, Z gonna beat everybody's ass. You wasn't supposed to leave. And he's like, well, you have the gun. If you call the cops, you done too. I was like, shit. You're right. So I called Z and told him what happened. Z is livid. And this deep African accent comes out. I couldn't even understand him on the phone. I was like, man, we dead, bro. So Z pulls up and is like, let's go. I said, um, I'm gonna stay here. Y'all go. He goes, I'm not in the mood. Ron, come the fuck on. So we all go. Me and Jarrett on the side of the hall where you can't see and Z knocks on the door. A man goes, who is it? Z goes, where's my bitch, man? Jessica screams, and the voice says, ain't no bitch in here, bruh. I was like, oh my god. Z goes, open the door. Guess who opens the door? That motherfucker with the dreads that Jarrett was smoking with at the rundown motel. I was like, yo! And so he comes and goes, come in and check to Z. Z motions for us to stay hidden. Thank God. So he goes in the room and Dreadhead there by himself. And Z sits on the bed with his strap out and goes, where's she at, man? Dreads goes, well, since she wants to steal work from my girl, she clearly wants to be here with us. We still don't see Jess. So Z goes to the closet and busts the door in and she's in there, tied up, knocked the fuck out. Dreads goes, I got 20K for her right now, man, and all is forgiven. Z said, we made more than 20K this weekend alone. Get out of here. So Dreads goes, my dude's downstairs not going to just let you walk out with her like that. And Z said, we'll see. Mind you, I can barely see. I'm around the corner, so I just hear everything. Next thing I know, I hear some shuffling and a gun goes off. Once again, I take off. But I took off down the hall and through the back. Jarrett wasn't far behind, and then we look behind us, and Z is running too with Jess over his shoulder. He throws Jess in the car and hops in the driver's seat. I hopped in with him, and Jarrett hopped in the other car, and we got the fuck on. I'm crying. I said, what the fuck happened? He goes, that man reached for his piece. I shot him in the face man i was like oh my god we got back to our hotel packed our shit and checked out we went to z and his fiance's condo nice as fuck by the way jess is up now and she tells us what happened apparently they recognized her from the motel and set her up clearly and once they snatched her they told her to trap for them and she said no so they beat her ass. That's when Z interrupted when he knocked, so they knocked her out. I was like, I really gotta go home, y'all. Sorry to kill the mood, but I can't take no more of this. Jarrett was like, same. Z's fiance was in the kitchen counting money, dog. Just like a rich hoe. So Z was like, everybody get some sleep. I gotta get rid of this. Talking about the gun. So he leaves. We all try to get some sleep. The next morning, he comes in with tickets for me and Jarrett. Jarrett goes, I'm not leaving just here. Not after last night. She has a daughter and needs to come home. Z was like, nah, we making money. I was like, wow, with a black eye and a busted lip and some Florida boys looking for you, you still trying to trap? Crazy. I was like, well, I'm ready. Jess goes, it'll be okay, Jarrett. 
I'll be home in three days. Jarrett started with that punching himself shit again. I was like, man, here we go. Jarrett goes, come with me or I'm killing myself. Z was like, ugh, not this shit again. I'll be in the car. Y'all two hurry up. So Jarrett is literally breaking down. You ever seen someone hysterically crying? It's intense and just trying to calm him. I'm at the door, ready. Jarrett randomly stops crying instantly like some movie shit and goes so you aren't coming just said no Jarrett I can't this boy Jarrett runs toward their balcony and jumps I swear to God Bible he fucking jumped I screamed so loud my heart stopped just runs toward the balcony and this boy Jarrett was hanging he didn't fall all the way he was stuck by his pants thank God We were only on the fourth floor, but he still would have died. It was a good drop. So Jess is helping him, and I call Z laughing my fat ass off, still crying. I was like, Jared is stuck. He tried to jump off your balcony. Z was like, what is wrong with this boy? Families live here, bro. What the fuck? So Z came up, helped get him, slapped the fuck out of him literally, and physically guided him to the car. Jess comes out and goes, I swear I didn't set you up, Zola. I never intended for you to trap. That's why you didn't. I hope we can be friends after. I looked at her like she wasn't speaking English, and I said, I'm not going to beat your ass right now because you already in bad shape. But I better not ever see or hear from you again. And she walked away. Z literally buckled Jarrett's seatbelt, laughing my fat ass off, and we went to the airport. Bear with me. It's almost over. We landed in Detroit. My man picked us up. We both looked horrible, so washed up and tired. My man was like, who is this white boy and what's wrong with y'all? I said, babe, neither of us are the same. Just take him to his car and take me home. We dropped Jared off on the way home. I told him everything. He couldn't even speak, honestly. I get a collect call four days later from a jail in Las Vegas. It's Jessica. She goes, We got caught trapping in Vegas and we all got arrested. I said, oh, why are you calling me? She goes, Z was wanted for kidnapping 15 underage girls and is linked to six murders, including Florida. I said, Florida? Murder? You have the wrong number. She screams, ask Jarrett to bail me out. He won't answer my collect call. I said, Jarrett, you really have the wrong number. I hung up and called Jarrett. He goes, yeah, I heard. It's on the news. He's a huge trafficker. I found out later that Jessica and his fiance played victim and said they were forced and Z, whose name I can't pronounce, was an African man and was wanted literally everywhere. He got sentenced to life and I hear Jess is back in Detroit with her mom and baby and that's the end of that. The end? That's it? <laughs> I told you, it is the most what-the-fuck awesome story I have ever read. (laughs) All on Twitter. Every single one. And it's all in 140 characters or less. Um, okay. I just, I, I, I mean, there's just no way. That, that's why I said I don't have any news because, holy shit, that was like 15 minutes. No, it was actually about 22 minutes. <laughs> Ooh, 22 whole minutes. Look out. 22 
whole minutes. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually took like a big shit, and I came back thinking it, you'd be over, and no, I was still going. <laughs> nice. Oh wow, the news. It's the news. <laughs> First off, a little a little fluff piece here. More than likely, this is not going to happen. This could be a kick in the bell. We haven't done a kick in a bell in a while, but uh, uh, this is an unconfirmed kicking the bell. From io9.com, Sam Raimi wants one more shot at directing Spider-Man, written by Andrew Liptak. While Sam Raimi has been on the publicity circuit for Ash vs. Evil Dead, on a side note, I haven't started watching that yet. I completely forgot about it. Thank you, io9. Uh, during the publicity circuit for Ash vs. the Evil Dead, Sam Raimi dropped an interesting bit of news. He would love to come back to direct another Spider-Man movie. In an interview with The Week, Raimi noted that he messed up Spider-Man 3 and that he'd be back to direct another film if asked. But Raimi also regrets the way his own run with Spider-Man character ended and expressed interest in making another Spider-Man someday. Quote, I messed up on the third one. I think they're so complete now, Marvel. They probably don't need me anymore. But if they needed me, I'd love to. It's great to be wanted. End quote. Matt, what do you think? Do you think uh, Sam Raimi uh, should direct another one? Or do you think he, he already had his time and he should just continue doing what he's currently doing? Which is not Spider-Man. Yeah, I think that uh, the time has passed. I mean... I think it's nice that he admits his his flaw and that he is basically saying I'm up for a second chance if they're willing to give it to me, but meh. It's it's over and done with at this point. Over and done with. Yeah, I think so too. I I just just you just got to move on. There is a good portion of people out there that did enjoy Spider-Man 3. I don't know why, but there are people out there that did enjoy it. Uh, next up here, something I just wanted to mention. There is a fellow by the name of Rishi Kaneria. Uh, Rishi spelled R-I-S-H-I Kaneria, K-A-N-E-R-I-A. You can find them at uh, at Risha Kaneria via Twitter. Uh, they call themselves a, or they describe themselves as a filmmaker and video essayist. He conceives, puts together, and narrates his own video essays and they run between like seven to ten minutes long i can't i don't remember them being any of any of his other ones being longer than 10 minutes but at the beginning of the year uh well maybe not at the very beginning of the year but sometime around when mad max fury road came out he put out a really cool visual essay about what made mad max fury road so unique and what his video essay talked about in particular was the use of first person uh shots camera shots via the first person and he spent, you know, seven, eight, nine, ten minutes talking about how that helped make the movie. Well, he returns with a new video essay about props in movies. And his latest video is entitled, Why Props Matter. And it is very, very fascinating. I first came about this uh, via filmschoolrejects.com. 
Their article was, This Video Essay Explores Why Props Matter in Movies. And what they say here on Film School Rejects, From props that become part of scenes, like Gene Kelly's umbrella and singing in the rain, to props that become characters themselves, like Wilson the Volleyball and Castaway, objects can become just as important as characters, dialogue, and narrative itself. It's a wonderful exploration and reminder that some of our favorite movie moments were created with the use of unique and interesting objects. And it is a fascinating video essay, and anybody out there who, well, I hope if you're listening to this podcast, you are into classic movies and what actually makes up a good movie, you got to check this out. Again, it's called Why Props Matter. You can find it on Vimeo, Why Props Matter. You will not regret it. Next up here, another article from filmschoolrejects.com, The Death of the Sequel Hook. It asks, and this is written by Christopher Campbell, and I find this quite interesting. Imagine this. A movie is made with a complete narrative arc, and it makes a billion dollars. But it features no tease of a sequel, so the studio decides to leave it alone. No, that would never happen. But without leaving the audience with a sequel hook, will they know to come back for the follow-up? Will they know that they want a sequel? And will any screenwriters know what to do for the encore without being pointed in a certain direction by a post-credits promise of the next villain or adventure? Look at Jurassic World for a good example of how to set up a sequel without falling into any traps. Although a sequel itself, the movie offers no assumption that the franchise will continue beyond its end credits. However, it does hint at possibilities here and there of how to move forward, one being the proposition of weaponized dinosaurs for military use. Another is an idea for an open-source market on dinos, perhaps leading to pets. Or perhaps we'll see Ice Age mammals introduced. Because Jurassic World has made more than a billion and a half dollars, it's obviously getting a sequel. And there's thrill in our not knowing what the movie will entail beyond the casting news that Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard will reprise their roles. There might be an issue for the producers, though, if they don't know what to do. That can either lead to a forced idea or a delay while a good one is developed. At a time when we're trained mostly thanks to Marvel to look for a post-credits stinger after every movie, which is not true, they don't have one after every movie, the lack of a sequel hook in Jurassic World was a very bold, very appreciated move. Too many other movies lately have ended with an open ending or an actual setup of what will come next. A lot of these are movies that have disappointed at the box office, including The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Terminator Genesis, Fantastic Four, and this past weekend with Jim and the Holograms. Or I guess that was two weekends ago with Jim and the Holograms. Now, if those teased sequels don't happen, the embarrassment extends beyond the fact that they were flops. Unfulfilled sequel hooks can be a constant reminder of their movie's failure forever. As far as we know, Jim could still receive a sequel. It opened only to $1.3 million, but it also only cost $5 million. 
is definitely not a loss for Universal Studios. The movie's overlong sequel hook involving the villainous girl group, The Misfits, may eventually be satisfied. The fans of the original Jim cartoon certainly won't want that unless somehow they can be convinced that the sequel will do the property justice. But with a cinema score grade of a B-plus from audiences who did go and see it, and the chance of it gathering more casual interest on home video and cable, a Jim 2 can't be discounted completely. And the article goes on from there. And I thought this was kind of interesting for two reasons. One, they're kind of wrong. This article is uh, the person who wrote it, Christopher Campbell. Jurassic World didn't need a post in credit scene because throughout the movie, they blatantly set the movie up for a sequel by, uh, by oh, the scientist. I can't remember the actor's name. And I can't remember the character's name. He was in the first one also. He is basically the guy who fucks everything up for every Jurassic Park movie, I guess. He goes off and you know he's going to create mayhem in a future film. So what else could a post-credit sequence do? Show you a new dinosaur? Well, no. You can't really set up another movie. I mean, it's not like you're watching a Marvel movie where you can show where you can see Thanos or another Marvel villain, so you can expect, ooh, yo, we get to look forward to this villain or this character in the next movie. It's set up and it gets you amped for it. You don't need that with Jurassic Park or Jurassic World because you can already you already know that the story will continue in some way. Every Marvel movie doesn't have a stinger at the end of it either, but. What's interesting about this article is something that I've said, uh, and I'm pretty sure we've talked about multiple times before. I think it does kind of soften the blow when you have a movie that doesn't have a setup for a sequel, unless it's a surefire hit. You know, I, I think it's safe to say that Back to the Future 1 led into a sequel, but they weren't really planning on a sequel. So it was kind of like a fun, you know, a a fun ending that, you know, the characters were going to continue their adventures. And then you have Back to the Future 2, which sets you up for Back to the Future 3. Because, well, they knew it was a big hit and people were absolutely going to go see Back to the Future 3. But with Terminator Genesis, you didn't need to have that ending hook to get you to go see the sequel to Terminator Genesis. Jim and the Holograms. Why the hell does Jim and the Holograms need a hook to get you to go see Jim and the Holograms Part 2? It just doesn't make any sense. I just don't think we need it. And lastly here, via IndieWire.com, here's how the new crowdfunding rules will change indie film financing. This is written by Mark Litwack. And this is something I find fascinating because... If you are one who has been skeptical about donating money to Indiegogo or Kickstarter because you don't feel right about giving $500 and just receiving a t-shirt or a Blu-ray in the future, well, you might actually get some money back. And this is what IndieWire says. Buckle your seatbelts because there may soon be a wave of new indie films produced under relaxed government regulations. 
the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, after a long delay has finally adopted rules to permit companies to offer and sell securities through crowdfunding. Several years overdue, the new regulations for crowdfunding are to implement the requirements of the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act, the Jobs Act, enacted on April 5th of 2012. Crowdfunding refers to the process of raising, well, I think we all know what crowdfunding is, I don't need to go into that. But essentially, the new rules will allow companies like Kickstarter and Indiegogo to offer those who contribute funds to receive more than just, like I said, posters, t-shirts, and the other swag they now get in return for a donation. So for the first time, promoters will also be able to offer a share of the profits in a project. Previously, internet platforms were limited to donations unless they complied with complex and costly SEC regulations governing investments. Under the new rules, however, if an indie film is a hit, the backers can share in its profits. This will likely encourage small investors who want to participate in film or other startup businesses but can only afford to make a modest contribution. The new rules limit the amount of individual investments to relatively small sums, but collectively, they will constitute enough of an investment to make a big difference for any startup. Investors with annual incomes or a net worth of less than $100,000 can contribute up to $2,000 or 5% of their net worth or income, whichever is greater. Wealthier investors can invest 10% of the lesser of their annual income or net worth in these transactions with a cap of $100,000 of over a 12-month period. Uh, and lastly here, the rules will allow a producer to raise a maximum aggregate amount of $1 million through crowdfunding offerings in a 12-month period, while this cap limits investment to what amounts to the catering budget of major studio films. It will allow any indie filmmakers to raise enough money to produce a film or pilot program. And the article goes on from there. Yeah, and that's pretty much my news. Matt, did you have any comments, questions, concerns over uh, these new crowdfunding rules or the pros and cons of the sequel hook in franchise movies? No, no, no. I definitely talked way more than enough for this episode. Oh. <laughs> And that's my news. All right. Well, then that will bring us to... Furry And this week's Three Squared again is a forgotten actor... And three examples of their work. I am choosing a man who had a, an amazing stint for about mm, six or seven years in Hollywood. Uh, is credited with revitalizing the swashbuckling genre for its time. And also goes to show just what happens, um, or that, or I guess, that no matter what era you live in, uh, acting like R. Kelly is never a good idea. The man, Errol Flynn, 
Now, this is a guy who actually um, lived a quite amazing life even before he got into Hollywood. He was someone who um, was active in shipping when he was young, sailed all over the place, and eventually decided to try his hand at acting, starting off in early Australian uh, stuff. Eventually, though, he... Um, he found a way to, um, you know, get some acting experience and he got a lead role in a film that is currently considered a lost film, uh, called Murder at Monte Carlo, which caught the attention of Warner Brothers and he was moved to Hollywood. And then he comes out with my first film, which is called Captain Blood. And it is, of course, a swashbuckling pirate film. And this is from 1935. And it was an instant smash. And basically, this was the film that launched, or I guess you could say relaunched, the swashbuckling genre as a whole. Uh, and when you think of swashbuckling, this is pirates and, uh, and, and the fencing and everything. Like when Princess Bride, that's swashbuckling. Uh, if, if you think of, um, more specific to the idea of pirates and stuff. Um, the movie with, uh, oh goodness gracious. What's the one with, uh, Gina Davis? Cutthroat Island. That's again, swashbuckling kind of stuff. Pirates of the Caribbean, that kind of thing. And he was amazingly famous during this time period. He eventually comes to do his first Technicolor film, and he had continued to do well. Uh, and this was The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938. And this is like the ultimate Robin Hood movie. You think that Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves did it, or any other, you know, Robin and Marion, or any of the other ones, Robin Hood Men in Tights, which parodies most of the other Robin Hood films or what have you. All of it, the genesis of all of those movies, comes back to The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938. It's a fantastic movie. Absolutely fantastic. If you're not much on the seafaring kind of thing, which is where Captain Blood is centered, then I think most everyone will enjoy that. Um, moving on was the last film that I have chosen, and the last of his truly great films, The Seahawk, another on the sea, <laughs> a swashbuckling film, this time from 1940. The thing is, and if you ever see, have seen a picture of Errol Flynn, this is like, he was Cary Grant before there was Cary Grant. He would be, you would think of him as a George Clooney of his day. But unlike George Clooney, this guy had literally no compunction in terms of keeping it in his pants. And... He went, uh, he was also a heavy, heavy drinker and had a poor heart, which means he could not actually participate in World War II. But he did try, but he did uh, do his part Hollywood wise by playing in patriotic movies during the period. Uh, however, he was, um, uh, he, he basically got in trouble for, 
supposedly having sex with two underage girls in like 1942. It was a huge trial. Uh, he was eventually acquitted, but most, but basically after everything that came out in terms of the trial and even with the girls and all this kind of stuff, his career was ruined. He also made several bad investments, including a film that he tried to finance that lost all of its backing and ran out of money and was never completed. Um, and turned to drink. He married multiple times and basically by the mid fifties, he had, he had a couple other appearances. Some of them were actually pretty good, but he just never ever got back, uh, to anything in his former glory. And by 1959, died of a heart attack and cirrhosis of the liver. Um, he is just, he really and truly was an amazing actor. He worked with the greats of the day. He worked with Betty Davis. He also spent, uh, he did like eight different pictures with Olivia de Havilland, um, or Havilland rather, who, by the way, is still alive. She's 99 years old. Um, and he truly is a part, a shining part of the golden age of Hollywood. Um, but, because of his personal life, he did not gain the true longevity that should have been associated with the greats of that period, with the David Nivens uh, of the day, with the Betty Davises, with the Laurence Olivier's and, and the people moving on from there. So I definitely would say that vast majority of people have not heard of Errol Flynn, but Anytime you see a pirate movie, anytime you see those people out there fencing, anytime you see those cutlasses flying, uh, you really have Errol, thank, uh, Errol Flynn to thank for that. So, Errol Flynn, Captain Blood from 1935, The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938, and The Seahawk from 1940. What do you got there, Tim? Because of the movies we reviewed last week for our horror flicks i was doing a lot of kind of research while uh you know after watching those movies and researching just other films from 1932 of when vampire came out and then also with 1942 uh which is when i married a witch came out i was reading about all the actors and actresses in both films and especially in i married a witch and how many of them were classic actors that really fell off the face of the earth and not too long after I Married a Witch came out. A lot of them just either passed away or just stopped acting. They just fell out of the limelight. And I really liked the idea of us talking about somebody that a lot of people just don't know anything about. Either they haven't heard their name or they've heard the name, but they just don't know anything about them, especially the types of films that they worked on or were in. And it's just, it's fascinating. And it's important to talk about all of these people from early cinema history because early cinema history is when cinema first started <laughs> it's when movies first started it's these are the people that influenced those that came later on i mean martin scorsese god martin scorsese was influenced by you know so many of the great like emmerich pressenberger and michael powell from the archer movies from the 40s and 50s and uh, you know, without those films, we wouldn't have Martin Scorsese, probably. Uh, same goes with comedians like Rob Williams, Jim Carrey. A lot of these comedians that we know for their physical comedy, Steve Martin, Martin Short, is because they were influenced by, like, Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And this other silent film era comedian, Harold Lloyd, which is the chap that I will be talking about here. Harold Lloyd 
rose to Hollywood fame during the silent era, when the majority of movies were made to just simply entertain, but mostly to make an audience laugh. According to a 2014 study done by the Library of Congress, 8,000 titles that were made between 1912 and 1929 have been lost. That's about 70%. The majority of early silent film history that has been lost forever. Unlike today, there were no film preservation committees during that time. And even though many moving picture icons were created, silent films were strictly looked at as a form of entertainment, not as an art form worthy of preservation. This sentiment was carried on well into the age of the talkies when, after the initial thought that the talkies would be a fad was proved wrong, silent films were tossed aside and viewed as something dated. A more modern day comparison can be made with the current battle being held at movie theaters with film versus digital. Over the years, most theaters have completely revamped their theater equipment to accommodate digital projection, therefore making 35mm film obsolete within the projection booth. But back then, there were no renegade auteurs like Chris Nolan and Tarantino, whom today leads the fight to keep 35mm alive in Hollywood. And there wasn't any committee like the National Film Registry that was established by the National Film Preservation Act of 1988, which adds 25 films deemed culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant to the Library of Congress's National Film Registry each year. There was nothing like that during the silent era, and not for many years after the silent era. Harold Lloyd is by no means a completely forgotten silent film icon. He's occasionally brought up in various retrospectives of the silent era, or discussions amongst movie lovers and those who appreciate early films, and also in the majority of historical cinema studies courses. But usually, he's just mentioned as a blurb or a fun fact. He was considered a third-wheel screen comedian after Charles Chaplin and Buster Keaton. Like Buster Keaton, much of his comedy features many, quote, thrill sequences, where his character gets caught up in some kind of death-defying physical act and chases. He wasn't as popular in the public's eye as Chaplin, and his films didn't gross as much as Chaplin's. However, during the 1920s, on paper, he was more successful as he was more productive, making overall more films than Charlie Chaplin. But unlike many of the other silent film stars who didn't successfully make the transition into talkies, Harold Lloyd did so. He did so with great acceptance from his fans. Though that doesn't go without saying that his career had begun to slow down. At the time of his transition into sound, he was making roughly two films a year. But once the transition was made, that number dropped to a single movie every couple of years. Luckily, he didn't put all the stock into acting. He also had the Harold Lloyd Film Corporation, his own independent production company, and he was also one of the founding members of the Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences. His career ultimately faded out during the 1930s when his on-screen persona failed to connect with the Depression-era audience. This led to the decline of both his movie company and his popularity. And which brings me to my three favorite films of his. And you 
totally got to check them out. One of them, you can find them. It's a Criterion release, or it has recently been released by Criterion. And you can find it on, on Hulu. For those of you who still don't know who he is, like I mentioned, he was the third rung to Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton. And according to www.highbrowmagazine.com, remembering Harold Lloyd, third genius, silent comedy, um, they they do a good job at describing Harold Lloyd. So maybe maybe now you'll be able to recognize him. Lloyd's glasses, like Chaplin's ill-fitted suit, firmly establish his character. For Lloyd, the glasses make him seem common, and they also challenge the general perception that men with glasses are more serious and astute, a perception that perhaps helps Lloyd elicit great laughs. Lloyd's character is anything but what his first appearance might have us believe. Instead of being an erudite and a no-nonsense fellow, he is bumbling, clownish, playful, and despite being a common man, he is willing to take some very uncommon risks, from scaling buildings to chasing down robbers and murderers, but making us laugh along the way. End quote. This <laughs> brings me to my three favorite films of his. First up from 1923, Safety Last. That's the one which features one of arguably the most famous shot in silent comedy, the, you know, the shot where he's hanging from a clock, where you know, he's dangling, uh, dangling from the outside of a skyscraper. For those of you who are fran- uh, fans of Martin Scorsese and have seen the invention of Hugo Cabret, you will be familiar with this shot because Hugo Cabret goes into the movie theater and he's watching this very same Harold Lloyd film, Safety Last. Where he's again, he's dangling from the clock, and you know it's it's very funny. You have got to watch it. My second choice is from 1925, The Freshman, and then finally from 1928, his film Speedy. Which uh, fun fact here, it was nominated for a short-lived Oscar category, I should say, and that category was Best Director of a Comedy. You know, very specific then. That also kind of goes to show you how important silent era films kind of catered to more comedy storytelling you know because again like i mentioned it was all about being entertained and what better way of being entertained than by comedy speedy also features a scene where he plays a cab driver Uh, one of the people that he has to cart around town is babe ruth and this is when you first see or this is when uh, when you see one of the very first cameo appearances in a movie by a by a famous celebrity babe ruth so, yeah, uh, that's all I will say about these films. They're not long, they're relatively short, so I really don't want to give anything away. You have got to check them out. If you're, if, if you're into comedy nowadays, especially physical comedy, just stop what you're doing after the show is over and spend time watching these three films. Again, they were Safety Last from 1923, The Freshman from 1925, and Speedy from 1928. Speedy is the one that has been recently released by Criterion, and you can find it on Hulu. So check them out. Awesome. All right. Well, next week we are going to be doing a uh, category that we haven't done for a while, Ultimate Letdown, a movie that we were, for whatever reason, really looking forward to, and just it didn't do it for us. Uh, And with nothing else, that will bring us to The Movies. All right, 
so this week's movies are Turbo Kid, Bridge of Spies, and Beasts of No Nation. Uh, where would you like to start, sir? Hmm, how about Turbo Kid? Alrighty, Turbo Kid, a film about the post-apocalyptic future where the kid, just this scavenger boy, uh, obsessed with comic books, uh, comes across a uh, new friend named Apple, and upon her disappearance, he has to assume the mantle of his turbocharged hero and overcome Zeus, played by Michael Ironside, of course. Um, all right, so this is a very retro uh, feeling movie. Uh, it's it's up there with uh, like Kung Fury. I'm not sure if you've seen that recently or not, or if you're familiar with it. It's a 30 minute short film. It's on YouTube for free. Check it out. I think it's funny. Um, this and, is and on Netflix now. They just released. Oh yes, it on that's Netflix. right. It is on Netflix. I sat down and watched it with Jen the other day on Netflix. Um, the this this is a film that is designed to evoke the nostalgia that made you remember and enjoy the films uh much along the same lines as Hobo with a Shotgun. I personally uh, as much as Tim and I disagreed years ago on Hobo with a Shotgun. For me, while I think Turbo Kid uh tries to do the same thing, it doesn't do it with a specific genre in mind. It's because it's got its own unique plot. But it does try to evoke the reasons why you enjoyed movies like um, uh, Escape from New York, which we discussed, and uh, um, and basically those heavier action films of the day. Now, again, with the comic book aspect that they've thrown in, they are definitely making it their own. But I don't know. I I liked the idea behind it. And I think that um, the nostalgia factor is fun, but at the same time, it as at the same time that it evokes that nostalgia that makes you remember those movies, it also reminds you why those movies are nostalgic, and that not everything that is fun to remember is fun to relive. Uh, at the end of the day, it's a decent movie, uh, but. It definitely has its failings. I give it 3.5 out of 5. What do you got, Tim? I, I don't know about you, Matt, but I'm kind of becoming tired of these retro nostalgia type of movies. I mean, Kung Fury was cool because it was a 20, 30 minute, you know, short film, which Agreed. worked. Agreed. Even though I didn't care for Hobo with the Shotgun, I can still appreciate what they did. And also, it was kind of ahead. I, I mean,. I kind of feel a little foolish saying this, but it's it was ahead of its time because now we're getting all of this retro stuff shoved down our throats, not just with Turbo Kid, but Pixels, for example, you know, the retro 80s arcade video games, you know, all the Atari stuff. There's a big resurgence of all this 80s retro, early 90s nostalgic kick. Uh, and a movie that I can kind of compare this to is... The FP. To me, the FP was a was a great mix of this film, what this film got right, and what Kung Fury got right. The FP was yes, it was retro. It was you know trying to be nostalgic in its own way because it's playing off like uh, uh you know like the whole Snake Plissken retro Escape from New York type of vibe, postal apocalyptic vibe. 
But while doing so, it was its own unique movie. You know, it had its own story to tell. The whole retro vibe to it was the atmosphere, but the meaty bits, the comedic moments, was its own unique storytelling. Turbo Kid has that to a point. It seemed as if it was constantly pushing all the right nostalgia retro genre buttons without creating something that is not its own and its own unique addition to the subgenre. I mean, I get that it's a homage, but a movie that's strictly an homage is just an homage and nothing more. It doesn't bring its own personality, you know, its own its own storytelling to the table. It's like once they set up something new and different, yeah, it's, you know, the idea of it's cool, but it gets old after a while until they come up with the, you know, the next interesting thing. And then that gets old after a while. And once you get used to the motions, you know, that it keeps going into the same motions over and over again, it kind of becomes boring. Ultimately, yeah, I mean, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So that is why I give this one 2.5 out of 5. I appreciate what it is. Very good. All right. Uh, Where do you want to go from here? How about A Beast of No Nation? Okay. Beast of No Nation. It's a 2015 American war drama film. Uh, And this is basically the story of a child soldier in Africa. And you've got uh, Idris Elba playing the evil commandant leader of this child soldier army. Um. It's. It, I mean, it literally starts off in this child's village and then just follows him through his time as a child soldier um, and the ultimate findings of his life by the end of his experiences in that regime. I got to say that for me, personally, knowing... Uh, having watched documentaries on this, having read articles and topics about this, about this very subject, um, it didn't real the subject matter for me really didn't do anything for me. But for those who are not already familiar with the plight of all these children, and to a large degree, it's still happening, um, in conflictary. Ev- heavy areas of Africa. I think this is a very good eye-opening drama to help you see what these kids go through. Um it's there's good performances all the way around and it tells a much needed narrative that we don't see on the big screen. But Due to the fact that, for me, the subject matter literally felt overplayed, I give this one four out of five. I think that most people who are not familiar with this and sit down and watch it will probably give it well over four stars, maybe even five for them. What do you got there, Tim? Four stars for me. Okay, so this is uh, directed, written and directed by Carrie Fukunaga, or Fukunagua, um, I think Fukunaga. He wrote and directed True Detective. And I haven't seen True Detective, but I am very familiar with the style, how it's shot, and how graphic the show can be. And I'll tell you this. Yeah, he doesn't shy away from unsettledies. 
And I, I understand. I know with a movie like this, it's hard not to show certain things because you have to show certain things to get the point across. But when it comes to making a movie, there are certain things that are that are not warranted. You know, like it would have been more effective if you didn't see a certain thing. And once you once they show it to you. It it kind of makes you sick to your stomach, and not not necessarily in the way that maybe the movie not 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 because of the subject matter, just because of the gore or the violence. For example, there are there are a couple instances in this movie where there are a couple things you just really didn't necessarily need to see, only because there were certain things that they easily could have showed you, but you did not see. Which, to me, was way more effective. You know, and, and so really that's kind of the only negative thing I have about this movie. And, I don't know, I guess I just feel a little weird saying that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of like, for example, somebody gets shot in the head. Well, you know, it's not the type of movie where you actually have to see the the head all fucked up, you know, to get the point across that, Okay, well, that person got shot in the head. Oh, well, that guy got a... His head just got hacked away with a machete. You don't really need to see it. You can see the blood splattering, and then you're okay. You don't have to see the shot of the brains and the you know fragments of the skull and all that stuff. You just don't need to see that. Because the acting in this film is so goddamn good. The acting, the scenery... Um, and I'm not just talking about Idris Elba, but Abraham Attah. I, I think I'm... Uh, saying his name right, I'm not sure. But he plays Agu, uh, the central character of this film. He plays the young boy. This is his very first movie. And I have to say, this is one of the best breakout performances I have seen. Uh, we've talked a lot about break about uh, child actors' breakout performances over the past couple years. This guy takes the cake. He is fantastic. Just the amount of emotion that he has to convey on screen is absolutely breathtaking and, and, and brilliant, and he does it so well. And what makes this movie special, and where where I definitely applaud uh, Fukunaga, is for all the subtleties in the movie. Beautiful subtleties. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Especially at... Well, one that sticks out is, is at the very end of the movie, where you have all of this horror, you know, all this, these horrific scenarios that that play out on screen that are very, that at times are very difficult to watch, not just for the violence or the gore, but just because of what these kids are going through or what, or, you know, the, the brainwashing, for example, there is still that feeling of hope at the end of the movie. And, you know, like, it, but it happens. It happens for like 10 seconds, you know, but it, it's the subtlety, not just, the conveying of the subtlety via the actor or the actors, but with how it was shot in the music. And it was, it's just like a perfect storm of everything great happening all at once. And it was just a beautiful film to watch. Uh, I love the elements of the film, of the storytelling, of the script, how, how everything played out. Uh, it, it's very difficult. I would imagine how difficult it could be to, to pull this story off, to show to show you how an innocent young child, how an innocent young boy becomes brainwashed into becoming this rebel killer. And the movie successfully, successfully shows you how that could be done. 
and it that and it makes it even more depressing to watch but it's not just the kids that go through this but it's also Idris Elba's character of the commander i think is that you only know him as the commander but he's being brainwashed as well and so there's depth to his character and you feel as much as you can feel for his character you kind of get this feeling that he's getting fucked over as well but on a different level of the kid. And it's just, I, I can go more into detail about it, but you got to check it out and let us know what you think because I, I love the levels of this film and the subtleties especially. But like I said, I just have that, I had that one issue that I poorly described a bit ago. <laughs> Therefore, I give this movie 4.5 out of 5. Do check it out. Then last but not least, we have got Bridge of Spies, the 2015 historical drama thriller film. It's written, uh, I'm sorry, directed by Steven Spielberg and uh, stars Tom Hanks. Um, All right, so Tom Hanks plays James B. Donovan, a lawyer who uh, was of some renown in the 50s, late 50s and early 60s due to his uh, negotiations with uh, the Soviets and later with Fidel Castro. Um, he also was the man who, much like John Adams, uh, defended a very unpopular person who, of course, was a Russian spy. Now, once again, this is based on a true story. So, there once was a guy named Donovan, and he was a negotiator. Okay, that's that. Anything else from there is basically we're dealing with a movie. So, on the front of the movie, it is superbly acted all the way around. Definitely high class uh, acting. Spielberg has definitely not lost his touch in terms of being able to get characters on the screen that you immediately relate to or at least have a reaction to uh, good bad and different whatever his design for that character is you're buying in um the problem with this film though is that the way it tries to set up the actual thriller portion of the negotiations uh with the Soviets is that it has these really weird disparate threads that try to explain how everything is going to converge for this tense negotiation that is going to be pulled off by Donovan. And in doing that, it was a unnecessary because there are much easier ways to tell it and still do it convincingly uh, and be overly long and tended to just drag the whole thing out. This is a movie that's 141 minutes in length, and I swear to you, it's at least 35 minutes too long. 35. The thing is, is that while you definitely can feel that it is dragging, the acting is just so good that you're at least willing to put up with it. And... I guess that's more of a testament to the ability of the actors and Spielberg being able to have good people to deal with the writing and stuff. But 
I just really think that he just did not get the pacing right this time. And consequently, I give this 3.75. Bring us home, Tim. Yeah, you know, the the length of the movie didn't bother me that much. Because I think once Tom Hanks gets overseas, and finally gets, gets to the destination, the movie turns into a different movie for me. Uh, and I mean that because the first half of the movie, it gets very preachy like America is great kind of kind of preachy where there are these not necessarily multiple and not necessarily long speeches but but there are a couple of them there are a couple interactions involving Tom Hanks where he's talking about you know the America legal system and how we must do every this is America and everybody has a right to a lawyer and everybody has a right to have an effective trial and this is America and this is a land of God and just all this stuff and it, it's very I, I I read a review or I was looking at a couple reviews and a guy kind of made a, this interesting comparison to a Frank Capra type of movie where with every not maybe not every Frank Capra type of movie but more of Frank Capra's most famous films. You know, there's usually that, like, compelling argument speech, <laughs> you know, and that's kind of what I felt this movie had too much of at the first, the first act and a half of the film. You just wait too much of this compelling speech bullshit that just really didn't go anywhere because the story hasn't really kicked into gear. Why are we having all these talks about how great America is? when the meat of the story hasn't even come into play yet. But then once the meat of the story does come into play, the movie gets interesting. There are these great shots, or uh, uh, not great shots, but there are these great scenes, normally uh, pretty much just with Tom Hanks and one other person, and it's very interesting. And the movie builds up to a really good climax where its success can only be attributed to the editor because the editor man it was completely on key they knew exactly where to cut when to cut to carry over to the next shot to the next scene to really get the audience ready for whatever needs to happen and doesn't happen i don't know it might not happen but will it happen well you never well actually you do know but i'm not going to say anything because you got to see this movie i know a lot of you probably haven't seen this movie at least legally but it's a very good movie just the first half of it, not so much. It felt like two different films. It's definitely a Steven Spielberg movie. Maybe that is why it felt a little Capra-esque to me. I kind of think Spielberg is slowly making the same movie, just in a different time period with a different story, but it's still kind of the same movie uh, between this Lincoln and Warhorse, it's still the same uplifting feeling. And I'm not talking like the, about like the classic E.T. uplifting type of feeling. No, I'm talking about like politics, America is great, Spider-Man, the amazing Spider-Man swinging through downtown New York with the help of cranes type of uplifting, where it just kind of feels like it's getting a little old and just a little too much. However, like I said, it's still a good movie, and I'm sure if I saw it again, I'd probably give it a better rating. But for right now, I'm landing on 3.5 out of 5. 
All right, and that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week, we're going to be covering Spectre, the latest James Bond entry. Uh, Bone Tomahawk and Mississippi Grind, both of those are VOD titles. And I think that will bring us to the spiel, will it not, sir? Spiel on! All right, well, the music you've been listening to for our intros has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can also send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can even follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me. This is Matt on Twitter at Nitwit12345. You can even track down Tim by climbing aboard that information superhighway and looking them up on twitter if that is your heart's desire and don't forget you can always subscribe to us on itunes and or favorite us on stitcher radio so until next week this is matt saying that thanks to errol flynn i get to say this the public has always expected me to be a playboy and a decent chap never lets his public down take care cinephiles and we'll talk at you again next week again for listening to the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com at the SLS cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.